Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where Alcoholics Anonymous members from around the world share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. Every episode is unique, inspiring, engaging, and meaningful. Each story is a powerful testimony of the recovery available to all in Alcoholics Anonymous. Today is an encore episode of my interview with Diane G., first recorded in March 2021. Diane got sober in June of 1976. My guest on today's show, Diane G., first met her husband, John, in AA nearly 45 years ago. As uncommon as that is, what's rarer still is that they stayed together, utilizing the tools of AA to successfully raise their family, launch their careers, and help countless alcoholics along the way. John was one of my closest friends, and I had a front-row seat to witness his remarkable ability to integrate AA into every facet of his life, including his marriage to Diane. What was beautiful was to watch John channel Diane's love into everything he did. That love was unshakable, and when John died of liver cancer almost seven years ago, Diane's AA program carried her through that tragic and difficult time. After he passed, she continued to channel John's love into everything she did. Today, Diane's life reflects the richness of the AA promises in action. She is involved and engaged in helping women in the program, many of whom identify with the abject abuse she experienced growing up. Using every tool laid at her feet by AA and other mental health resources, Diane has dealt with an incredible array of bad times and good times, and she passes on to others the experience, strength, and hope that makes her a cherished friend to many, including yours truly. So, turn your phone to Do Not Disturb and enjoy the next hour with one of my favorite AA sisters, Diane G. Hi, I'm Diane. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Diane. So good to have you here today, and I appreciate the opportunity to share our common experiences and hear more of your story as a recovering member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I want to, first of all, say that your your late husband, John, was a very, very close friend of mine. And you and I got to know each other over the years as John and I used to go to meetings together. And sometimes we'd go to mixed meetings together. But his legacy is still huge in this AA recovery community. And there's still people who refer to him. And he had little slogans and sayings here and there that kind of entered the lexicon of AA lore. And so it's been, uh, it, it's been really wonderful to be able to reminisce whenever I hear those things in meetings. Today, I wanted to focus on you and, and your sobriety. Um, now, John would have been coming up on 45 years, I believe, right? Yes, it's September. Right. So how long have you been sober and what's your sobriety date? It's June 14th, 1976. June 14th. So I came in first. You came in first. Okay, good, good. <laughs> so that's you're, you're coming up on 45 years, yes, which sir. which is really, really amazing, isn't it? it, it it's, it's just gone by so quickly. 45 years ago or 44 years ago, did you ever look forward years or decades and imagine what your life was going to be like if you stayed in AA? Well, I guess I did. And I the way I did it was I looked at people who had who came before me uh -huh. and I saw what they had 
And I tried to align myself with getting to know people who had double digits and Mm -hmm. figure out uh, what they had that I wanted and how to get it. Sometimes they even ask. Did you really? Yeah. It's interesting to sit in meetings when you're new in sobriety and look around and listen to people share who've got 5, 10, 20, 30, 40 years of sobriety. It seems like almost an insurmountable amount of time, doesn't it? Yeah. It, yeah. It's almost sometimes I feel uh, sometimes afraid to even tell people because uh, they may have expectations of, oh, and you still have to go to meetings and still have to work, <laughs> still have to work the steps after 45. Yeah. 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 Isn't that something? I Sometimes I feel a little self-conscious about that as well, like telling them how long I've been sober creates a little bit of a barrier, almost as if I, at 33 years, can't grasp or understand or relate to what they're going through at six months or a year. Do you you find that, too? Yes, but, you know, I think because I try to always remember what it was like, Mm -hmm. I don't feel distant from them and I have to somehow make them understand I remember I still remember and the way I remember is by going to meetings and listening and going "Uh uh-huh uh-huh I understand Mm -hmm. yeah do you intentionally um, seek out younger newer members to kind of keep that freshness to what it was like early on keep that component kind of in your mind I don't know if I seek it but I'm so grateful when it happens. Mm-hmm. I go to a women's meeting. Mm-hmm. We just got back into the church. Probably it's been like six weeks ago. Oh, great. And there was a newcomer mm-hmm. who had gotten sober, young person, through mm-hmm. Zoom meetings. Mm-hmm. And we all talked about the, during our Zoom meetings what it might have been like to get go to your first AA meeting in Zoom and be young, a young person and mm-hmm. how you do it. And hmm. it's been refreshing and wonderful to see this young woman's journey. Yeah. That's, a, that's amazing. That's something I've wondered a lot about, and I've asked a number of the guests I've had on the show. Uh, we've had uh, about 13 or 14 people on so far, and I, I try and gain a perspective from them as to what they think it's going to be like for those people who got sober with Zoom coming back to live meetings. Um, what have you noticed about that as you've gone back to the live meetings? The thing I, I loved and still love about Zoom is the ability to meet people from all over the country and people oh, yeah. who can't come to our meetings anymore because they moved. Uh, mm-hmm. But being back in the rooms the energy and the warmth, even though we're not touching each other, uh, we're keeping mm-hmm. our distance. It just felt like coming home. It just, it, it's, and it's a women's meeting that, that I've done that with. And, uh, yeah. it just feels very comforting to know that they have been with me through all of this and we've been together mm-hmm. and, uh, these meetings to see them. It, it's been a blessing, but Zoom was a blessing. Or it still is. (laughs) Yeah, Zoom was a blessing. And uh, imagine, uh, Diane, 30, 40 years ago before this kind of technology when maybe at most you could talk to one person on the phone at at a time, what it would have been like to try and keep this whole thing together. It would have been difficult. But I was also reminded by one of my guests that during the Second World War and during other times when people couldn't even 
connect by phone, they still even connected by letters. So I guess AAs will find a way to do it no matter what. You mentioned women's meetings, and this is a question I've never asked, but I've always been interested because people always ask me when I tell them I go to men's meetings, well, how are men's meetings so much different than mixed meetings? Could I ask you that question? Uh, how are women's meetings different than a mixed meeting? I think for me, in the beginning of my sobriety, they were so important because I had a lot of issues with being manipulative and mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. gamey, as they used to call it, with guys. So uh -huh. it was better for me to be with women who could identify uh, what truly was going on and for me to learn to be honest about where I was at, what I was working on, what I needed to work on mm -hmm. uh, without the distraction of a cute boy sitting across the room. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. So the energy level was different, though the issues may have been the same. Yeah, the support level, you know, the women in AA, at least the meetings that I've enjoyed over the years, have been very supportive women, have not been mm -hmm. competitive women trying to mm -hmm. get the same guy and uh, none, none of that stuff. Mm -hmm. it, it just, uh, women helping women. Yeah, yeah, I get that. That's a pretty important thing. I always tell men that I sponsor that they should be going to at least a couple of men's meetings a week. And, uh, of course, that's when, when John and I would most interact would be at our mm -hmm, men's meetings mm -hmm. during the week. It was always, it was always a, a great, great time to get together. So what was going on 46 years ago or 45 years ago in your life that made you decide that you needed to get, get some help? Well, I, I had finished college and was kind of a lost child and didn't know what I wanted to do. And, Mm -hmm. uh, I had never had a goal, uh, a life goal other than mm -hmm. to get through it. And I didn't have very much self-esteem. And my story was my uh, roommate, Vicki. Mm -hmm. We lived in these apartments and some of our neighbor young guys were going to this young people's program called PADAP that mm -hmm. based the 12 steps and got permission to use them. And mm -hmm. these guys were not flirtatious, were, were talking about life and things that I'd never heard young guys talk about hmm. and mm -hmm. talk about the meaning of life. Even, you know, I could hear them talk about God, but I would be in the room with them, but I just couldn't get it. And I think it was probably... I don't know if it was like three or four months after being around them that I realized they were not, they did not drink and they had a hmm. different attitude about life and respect for the opposite sex, which I just thought was so strange. Hmm. And they asked me to go to a, a dance and mm -hmm. because I wouldn't go to a meeting. They said, well, mm -hmm. you know, I wanted to see, can you really have fun and be sober? And what is mm -hmm. this about? And anyway, so I went to dance. I don't know what, what it was, but it, it was just wonderful. It was a wonderful evening. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so I had to drink that next night because I had to. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's just the way it was. And I got very drunk. And then the next morning, uh, a Monday, I uh, had a car wreck uh, right down mm. the street where my mother kind of was like waving at me as I was sleeping. <laughs> oh, no. And I had a car wreck and a, a oh, guy hit gee. me. And mm. it was... I went to my first meeting that night. Wow. Wow. Have you been sober since that night? Been sober since that night. God, that is amazing. So a big turning point 
in the form of a car crash for you, huh? Yes. And also, I, I think, was the example of a big book that these young people were showing me. They were just so nice, and they, no one was trying to tell me my life sucked, but they were kind of showing me how uh-huh. how better their life was than mine by example. And I caught it. You know, I said, you know, I, want, I, I just said I can't do this anymore, you know. I was the type of drinker that I was drinking. When I drank, I got drunk, and I got sick. And I mm-hmm. uh, ended up in the hospital more mm-hmm. than once with mm-hmm. bleeding ulcers. And oh, I had a sister that would cover for me and tell my parents mm-hmm. I was right. I had rode the rides at Astroworld and got really sick. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> so you were going to Astroworld a lot in those days, huh? Well, I worked there. That was my first job oh, when I was did? 16. Okay. And uh-huh. got, a, okay. got introduced to a lot of good parties. And yeah. I'll bet. I'll bet. Well, so as we're kind of naturally working backwards from from when you first went into the program, why don't we rewind a little bit and and maybe you can give me a little bit better idea what your what it was like for you just growing up in your family of origin and what might have led you down whatever path it was to get to alcoholism. Well, I was the youngest child of four. Uh, I was mm-hmm. born premature. I weighed four pounds and four ounces, and oh my, my mom had to leave me at the hospital uh, in the incubator, and my father was nowhere to be found. Um, you know, mm-hmm. I never understood, and we never asked why we didn't have a car. But I guess Hmm. it had something to do with with my dad, who was definitely drank and drunk Mm -hmm. and was very Mm -hmm. abusive. My main memory was of him beating up my mom in the kitchen and then beating up my brothers, but never touching me and my sister, but me and my sister hiding. Hmm. And there was Mm -hmm. always a lot of yelling. But my mother had a moment of clarity and uh, when I was five, decided to divorce my father I see. But Uh I didn't know at the time, she already had the second father Uh back in the background, who she took me over to his house to wash his dishes. And I'm like, why are we at this other house? And she she was like, it's a secret. There was a lot of secrets. I'll bet. And so anyway, they ended up getting divorced. And Uh it it was very confusing because we were brought up Catholic. And yeah. when we went to Catholic school, I was told, because my parents got divorced, that we had to tell everyone he is dead. Oh. I'm six years old, and I was telling people he is dead, and I'm like, I, I don't understand. But we had to keep that secret. And because they got divorced? Because they got divorced. Oh, and my so my mother said, just tell him your dad's dead. And we didn't oh. see him much. Uh, but when we did, my father lived in downtown Houston before it was a cool place mm-hmm. to live. In a right. hotel room above a bar that just mm-hmm. had a bed and a burner. And my mother would drop us off there mm-hmm. and we'd mm-hmm. have to visit him. And then we'd go visit his parents that lived in the mm-hmm. Heights and they were wonderful German, mm-hmm. wonderful people. And, mm-hmm. but my father, she would say, my grandmother would say he learned how to drink in the Air Force, um, mm-hmm. during World mm-hmm. War II. And yeah. uh, him and one other brother, that's where uh-huh. the, uh, had the drinking issues. And then my brothers both really got heavy into drugs. And mm-hmm. um, I, the only time I remember drinking as a little kid was my father, before he left, we were at my grand, my cousin's house. And mm-hmm. he gave me a sip of his um, Bloody Mary. 
and just was laughing mm-hmm. and boy did it just was an explosion of everyone yelling and screaming and I started crying because I didn't know I did anything wrong and um, I guess that was like the beginning of the end with the family uh, um, a very uh, difficult time for me started because I was uh, five and my brother is eight and he started sexually abusing me oh, no. and the, it, I never understood why me, and I mean, at the, at that time through until I was fifteen years old, till he, mm. and basically till he went to Vietnam, and oh, uh, I didn't understand why me because me and my sister shared a bed, and sure. I I didn't know until I finally had the conversation with her when I got sober, and she said yeah. he tried it with me, and I fought back, and I. I knew it was happening to you, but I thought it better you than me. And mm. it was a very selfish mm. thing. And I, I was too afraid. I mean, she was only 15 months older than me. So she was like yeah. six and yeah. so six and a half. So she just turned a blind eye and, um, you know, yeah. but my stepdad, yeah. I have to say, was a good man, a good father mm-hmm. to me and my sister mm-hmm. and tolerated mm-hmm. my brothers and, the one of the reasons my brother was able to control me and manipulate me was he would threaten me, and yeah. he said, "I'll I'll beat you know I'll beat up yeah. you know yeah. pop you know the stepdad," and then he did, and put his uh-huh. hand through there was hands fists through the walls, and so I decided mm. I had you know I didn't have a choice, wow. and uh, that- there was a, one time I pulled a knife on him. And uh, I got cut. I have a scar on my leg, and we got in a knife fight, and uh, I lost. <laughs> oh, jeez! But uh, so I, I was raised very in a very violent family, but I was too afraid of to make friends because mm-hmm. people were not really. It, it's I I didn't really think about it, but until I did inventory, that people were not allowed. Mm-hmm. Girls were not allowed to come to our house because the reputation of my brothers being mm-hmm. kicked out of school mm-hmm. and sent to public school. People yeah. didn't want to hang around with us, but my sister wow. somehow always managed to be the very popular, sweet, quiet, very smart, very mm-hmm. kind, very good. So I would kind of like uh, hide behind her and be with her so, friends. I didn't know how to make a friend. So you were, because she was 15 months older, you were still kind of in the same, almost the same peer group. But it sounds like, and, and I'm, I'm so sorry to hear about the, the trauma that you suffered as a little kid. No, no child should ever have to go through that. Yes. And, I, and, I, and, I, and it, it, the thing about secrets is when you try to, at some point, I tried to tell my mother and she said, it's always the girl's fault. I don't think she knew what I was trying to say. My mother was not Mm -hmm. a bright person and wasn't, it's not a nice thing to say, but she was kind of a voodoo Catholic where she believed in praying to statues and holy cards and that's how things get fixed and throw holy Mm -hmm. water on you and it'll be Mm -hmm. better. And don't tell me, you know, I don't want to hear it. And so she, I don't know if she knew on some level, but when I finally confronted her as an adult in sobriety, She's like, why are you telling me this now? You have a husband. You have a great house. I don't want to hear about it. Uh, but my stepfather said, why didn't you tell me? I would have protected you. So he was more always more of an adult. 
So that went on for a long time, from the time you were five until... Fifteen. Fifteen. My goodness. That's yeah, till he got sent to Vietnam. And, That's um, horrible. You know, I, it was not a nice thing, but I prayed that he would die, you know. Oh, uh, yeah. The other major thing was when I was 13, I, had, I finally was trying to have a friend. Yeah. And my brother raped her. And so I couldn't, I couldn't keep the friendship. I couldn't, I couldn't look at her. I felt responsible. She didn't blame me. She did not blame me at all because she was flirting and felt like it was her fault. It was just, Mm -hmm. we didn't know. And Mm -hmm. she was only 13. I just knew he was evil. And, um, you know, hindsight, it's obvious that he was learning it from somewhere. Some of the things he said and did. I know, you know, I know today there was something broken in him. Someone broke him, too. So, anyway. Yeah, I can imagine. That's that's usually usually when that kind of behavior comes out is after that person has learned from somebody else. Yes. And uh, so me and Pam drank for the first time. Okay. This was at, what, 15, you said? 13. 13. At 13. At 13. After what happened to her, we drank and we both got drunk and it was the first time I realized I could kind of I I felt disoriented I knew I I didn't know what was happening and it felt good to not know what was happening so Pam was your friend she was the one that your your brother raped so even after that experience you and she stayed stayed were able to stay friends (sighs) for a while for a while for a while It it was almost like we couldn't talk about it. We drank about it. So we, she was the only person I drank with. My sister caught me drinking once and told me, you know, that's not cool. Don't do that. You know, it's not a good idea. And uh, so I'd spend the night at Pam's house and we would drink to the point of getting drunk. So you and she were survivors of the same demon in your lives. And I did, of course, we didn't know that at the time, and we didn't know yeah. why we were drinking, but we'd only do it on weekends. You know, I couldn't spend the night or anything. We only did it on weekends. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, but uh, the other, I guess, major thing that I forgot, I just thought of that when I was 10, my when my mother remarried, we had uh, two stepsisters and a stepbrother. They did not live with us, and they were mm-hmm. older. The, the girls were older, and right. the stepbrother was like, I think between my brother's age, but he was a normal and he would spend the night and he also sent something and kind of was trying to protect me in a sense, but he didn't know it at the time. He just would, he just, because I was the little one, he was always really kind to me and kind of like, uh, was there. And then, uh, when I I was 10, my uh, stepsister, uh, got killed in a car wreck by drunk drivers. Mm -hmm. The reason why this is important is, yeah. My mind was stupid, uh, immature, yeah. and I swore I'd never drive. Never drive. I never drive. I didn't get my driver's license until I was 21, only because people made me. I was terrified uh-huh. of driving. Not terrified uh-huh. of drinking and driving, but terrified right. of driving. So you were traumatized by that occurrence to the extent that it made you want to never drive, and the other trauma that you had suffered culminated in 
starting to drink at 13. Yeah. Yeah. When you started to drink at 13, what was the feeling that you got from that? Was it, were you able to blot out what had gone on or, or what, what was the, uh, that experience like? Yes. It kind of taught me that, especially if it was a weekend and I had enough yeah. to drink and if something mm-hmm. happened that evening, I mm-hmm. learned to be above myself uh-huh, yeah. and not be in my body when it was happening. Because then he started bringing friends over and touching oh. me inappropriately. And so I just was, I, 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 it was a weird feeling. I felt like I was floating above. That could have been the alcohol, but that, yeah. that's how I learned to tolerate what was happening. Yeah. Disassociation, they call it, I think. Yes. Disassociation. And I, and I, I, I couldn't cry. I couldn't cry. Yeah. I, I just yeah. was like, no. I once had a, um, a psychiatrist tell me that when we explored my childhood, uh, he spoke about disassociation and uh, the only way to uh, get through the idea of being of having been beaten. And my dad used to say, whenever we cried, I'll, I'll stop crying. I'll give, give you something to really cry about. So for the rest of my life, I always had a very, very difficult time shedding tears about anything. And of course, I had to do a lot of work on that yes. with psychiatrists and psychologists over the years. But it took a long time to get over that. Yes, it, it took me too. I, uh, when I did my very first inventory, I was mm-hmm. blessed with a sponsor mm-hmm. who started off with the third step prayer. And then mm-hmm. I'm going to share with you my deepest, darkest secret. And she shared oh, with wow. me the exact same thing. She was abused by a brother. Wow. I'd never, wow. I just cried. We both cried. And it was just, it was like, I couldn't, I just couldn't talk. I could, I just, it was, I felt God. I felt like love for the first time and that I was going to get through it. Uh, she was a sweet sponsor, very loving. And uh, basically, told me at some point I probably would need, you know, some type of therapy. Yeah, yeah. And I did get therapy when my daughter was, my middle daughter was five. I walked in the room and I saw her and she reminded me of me and I just started bawling. Yeah. And I told John that she was always going to be safe and she was going to have a childhood and I didn't have a childhood and I just broke down. And yeah, I was lucky yeah. enough to find a therapist that specialized in it and have worked with a lot of women, you know, I have sponsees that were drawn to me and didn't know the situation. And so many of them have were victimized by some type of abuse. Isn't that amazing how you found a sponsor who had the same experience as you had without knowing it ahead of time? If that's not a God deal, I don't know what is. <laughs> it was a it was such a miracle blessing. I just any other sponsor that I had after that. Yeah. Uh, not that they wouldn't help, but no right. one ever to this day uh, as a sponsor understood that. There's a lot to be said for that, where the other person having the same experience in the same way, first of all, makes you feel like you're not alone, but also gives you a sense of hope because if they've gotten through it, then maybe you can get through it. And that's where that shared that shared trauma, that shared pain and everything else can make a can make a big difference. So you were drinking at 13. And then how long did that go on? And that's what middle school going into high school? Yes. And it seemed like I my progression was very fast. I mm-hmm. was committed to trying to to be the good girl uh, yeah. out of fear. Because I saw if you're not good, you'll end up like my brothers and, you know, 
jail and everything else and uh, it'll upset your parents more than they're already upset and they don't deserve Mm -hmm. that and i really was trying to listen to my sister who kept saying study and it's like we'd have the same class and in high school and spanish and she'd study for five minutes and i'd study for 35 minutes and i i kind of resented it but i i just finally accepted I had to study harder to get what I wanted compared to her sure. and that she mm-hmm. was always my cheerleader. Like you're, you can mm. do it. You can do it. It's even if it takes mm. you, to, you know, uh, and to this mm-hmm. day, she's always been supportive and she, she didn't understand why th- things would happen to me the way they did. But it, like in high school, mm-hmm. I was ridiculed. I was very thin mm-hmm. and there was priest that said things to me like you're a surfer's dream a flat board oh my. what priest would say that a priest said that in front of the whole class yeah and yeah. there were nuns that would tell me this person margaret is beautiful and she's popular and you're not so much but you know what that means you're going to get a higher place in heaven <laughs> so i got all this distorted mean in things thrown at me. Yeah, and isn't it amazing that what that priest said to you doesn't sound shocking these days? I mean, you know, before everything that's been going on in recent years, that yes. sort of thing would have been a shock. But when you said it, it's like, well, of course they, of course he said that. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. <laughs> and, and it was almost, it was almost flirtatious too. Oh no! It was almost a mixed message. Yeah. High school, I just survived, and I finally, though, made a couple friends. Oh, good. Who, one of them is still my friend today. Mm-hmm. She introduced me to a fun weekend at this, it was a strange thing, at these people's house mm-hmm. that lived in her neighborhood, and the mother mm-hmm. was an invalid, I and see. she let everybody come over and smoke pot, drink a alcohol, do anything you wanted to do. She loved having young people around. Huh. I mean, they do drugs too. I mean, sure. yeah. like, uh, you know, acid and besides pot, all kind of stuff. But mm-hmm. me and, me and Cece were like, mm-hmm. we just drank and flirted with the surfers. You know, we just were, <laughs> you know, wanted to, we both wanted to find a boyfriend and yeah. yeah. I didn't have the tools to have a relationship. Mm-hmm. I had really bad acne. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't very attractive to most boys and. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was just their friend. Yeah, yeah. So a neighborhood lady was allowing for this stuff to go on with underage. Yes, yes. And the police never came. Uh, I mean, there must have been 30 kids at this house and wow. maybe more. And then wow. we'd have parties. and But I never really connected with anybody uh-huh. until I think it was my senior year. And I ended up liking this he was kind of nerdy looking, which uh-huh. yeah. was, he was cute. He was yeah. a cute nerd. Uh-huh. He was kind of a ready to go to college, nice guy. Uh-huh. I invited him to my uh, graduation. Uh-huh. And for some reason, my father showed up. Wow. And all, my friends, uh-huh. a handful of girls that I have friends with, I just introduced them like it was nothing. This is my real dad. They're like, what are you talking about, Gerald? <laughs> and I just thought it was funny. Of course, I had drank before that, so right. I just thought it was hilarious. And uh, he just made an appearance and left. Yeah. But that evening, we drove downtown. We're mm-hmm. all drunk. I don't know why we were driving town. And mm-hmm. I saw him stumbling. And I just started bawling. 
I just... Yeah, this is your dad you saw stumbling down the street or just... Yeah, down the street, close to where he lived, somewhere wow. by where he lived. And it hit me of of my, you know, family of origin. That is my dad. And I'm wow. a loser. Who would want me? And Oh. Oh, it just... It just I guess that at that point, I realized, you know, in a lot of ways, I am, you know, depressed. You're right. And right. the thing that saved me in some ways was all the partying because uh, I didn't know I was depressed. I kept partying. And mm-hmm. between the surfer boys and the Astroworld people. Wow. The Astroworld people really drank more than the surfers who did more drugs. Right. So it's like one between two worlds. So you moved between the two of them just on a, a regular basis, working at Astroworld and then hanging out with the surfers. You did both, huh? Yeah, I was looking for love in the wrong places. <laughs> just looking. <laughs> I just thought he would fall in my lap. And, you know, this one guy did kind of, but he, he wanted to have sex and I just wasn't willing. And wow. So he dumped me. And then there was, of course, there was the guy that was had the guitar. Oh, yeah. He was like... Um, uh, James Taylor, who right. all the girls were like, <gasps> and I was like, oh, my God. And my sister's like, stay away from him. Yeah, and, yeah. of course, I wasn't going to. Wow. He was the guy that I chose that I was going to have sex for the first time. Right. The day before my first day of college. I, went to, I was going to U of H. Uh-huh. And I didn't want to be a virgin. Right, right. And just the only person who had, right. Know, touched me was my brother so and then ed apparently um told me to go home and grow up because i started crying hysterically after it i was just you know i didn't know i i just you know so then there was the college years of drinking drinking going to class trying to figure out what i was going to do when i grew up but if anybody liked me Mm mm-hmm I, I wouldn't even give them a chance because I, I didn't, especially if they looked normal. Yeah. Uh, I, I had the, uh, what do you call, student teacher. Right. Uh, who was interested in asking me out, which I'm sure he wasn't supposed to, and asked me over to his apartment, took us, took me to dinner and then to his apartment. And he would have made sense to have a relationship right, with because right. he wasn't trying. He right. was just trying to be a gentleman the whole time and right. just was enjoying talking it. No, I I ran. That's such a tragic irony you're talking about right there, that you wanted the relationship, you wanted the love, and the minute it started coming towards you, you, you pushed away from it mm-hmm. and went right back to the, the booze and the drugs, I guess, right? Yeah, and I didn't do any drugs for a long time. I, I think I smoked pot once in college. I just, I didn't like the way it made me feel. Okay. And you got to realize I was not, uh, I had no car. So anything I did, somebody had to take me to and from. So I get it. So I had to have really good friends that cared about me so that they would, you know, come and get me if I got stranded on those one night stands. Yeah. And there were so many that it was really embarrassing. When I did my inventory, it really was embarrassing. But it was great because I saw the pa- I started seeing the pattern. It was the first time when I did an inventory with this great sponsor that that she helped me see the pattern. And you know, I tried to make school a priority, but yeah. then then it was pretty funny. Uh, Ed got married, uh-huh. and you know, he called me in his office at Astroworld and said, "I'm getting married," and I'm like, "Who too?" You know, uh-huh. I was like, "What?" <laughs> and uh, he married the 
sweet virginal kind of impression girl. And anyway, mm. jump a, a year later, I started having an affair with him because he wasn't happy. Oh, my. Okay. And and then he proposed to me why he's drunk and I'm drunk in front of a couple uh-huh. friends. Why he's still married. Yeah. And, and I'm entertaining that. And he goes, we're going to move. Let's move to Idaho. And I went, oh, okay. <laughs> oh, and and, and uh, I remember ta- for some reason talking to a college professor. Uh-huh. And she said, don't do it. Yeah. She said, don't do it. Uh, don't do anything for a guy. <laughs> She's a sociology professor. She said, you, you need to think about your education and wow. your future. And, you know, that can wait kind of thing. And, and of course, I, I don't even know if I told her that, you know, of course he was married. But, I mean, they were separated at the uh-huh. time. Right, right. But uh, my sister was like, absolutely not. Yeah. I love yeah. him you know, as a friend, but he is bad news. And no, you know, no, no, no. You stay in school. She was at mm-hmm. UT. Mm-hmm. Sure. So you're still you're still at uh, at the University of Houston. I stayed at yeah. I stayed at right. U of H because I I didn't know how to drive. My mother took me to school. Right. I get that. Yeah. And until I until I got a roommate, Vicky, and then uh, she would take me to school. And that was much cooler. Did you suffer any of the consequences most people do in college when they're active drinkers? Uh, did you do your schoolwork? Did you get through it? Or did you have problems with the academic part of your college? The first year, I had problems because with Ed and all that. Yeah. And I told my sister I wanted to drop out. And, and she told me, don't do it. You know, uh-huh. Don't do okay. that. Don't go with him and all that. And my grades weren't that good. They were never that good. Right. But they weren't bad. I was pretty much so a B C mm-hmm. student. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how, but I usually would not go out until 10 o'clock after I did my schoolwork. I get it. Yeah. You know, it was discos and yeah, yeah. I loved to dance. I had to mm-hmm. dance. Sure. It was important. <laughs> yeah. Well, disco days, everybody had to dance, right? <laughs> I didn't really have any consequences. Yeah. Uh, other than internal. Yeah, uh, yeah. Because I wasn't driving yet, so I couldn't hurt anybody uh, when I, you know, uh, other than my mouth. Yeah. Uh, I, I was mainly hurting myself the whole yeah, time, physically and mentally. It was mainly that was my major consequences until I then felt, started following CC through motocross. Then I got oh, interested wow. in, in motocross. Motocross. And, yes. So the one guy that I liked was number one at the time, and she was really mad because he asked me to go to dinner with him after oh, a, a race, okay. and uh-huh. we had just met, and I was supposed to be getting married, and she just said, I thought you were getting married to, to <laughs> and Ed. I went, yeah, and I was like, yeah, you know, <laughs> uh, you know uh, who knows? <laughs> and so Gary was like the all-American non-drinker. Yeah, because he was very committed to what he was doing, and and his father, I think, drank yeah. too much and had a brother. So anyway, right, we took time to get to know each other, and we uh-huh. I'd go during college spring break, I'd go mm-hmm. to California or Florida, wherever he was, and we did not mm-hmm. get intimate for a year. But I'd have a boyfriend here. Yeah, I then get I it. wouldn't have a boyfriend. Then I, yeah. I, I just it was just all over the place. Yeah, yeah. The main reason I'm bringing this up is because. I went to meet Gary's family, and it was getting serious. And I thought, when I finished college, I'd move to California, become a juvenile probation officer, right? And and we'd get married. So I went to meet his family, and his father. I drove with his father, and you know, met his family. I was drinking so much. I don't know what happened. I still to this day, I wish I could have. You know, there was only telephone, so he stopped accepting my phone calls. But something happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
and he would never speak to me again. Oh, no. This was 1976. So that happened in a blackout then, huh? Yes. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I was there at his house for a week, you know, with his family, and and I don't know what I did. I guess they noticed something, though. Don't you think so, Diane? Yeah. I think think I might have said or done some really inappropriate things. No doubt. (laughs) Yeah. Which, you know, I was a funny, I was a, I was not a mean drunk at all. I was a fun entertainer. I could have stripped in front of them. I don't know. Right. Right. You know, but it was over. And my friend Cece was kind of thought, ha ha, now it's your turn. You know, it's your turn. She was kind of mad. It still had that little in the back of her head, mad at me. And I'm still mad at her that she didn't ask him what I did when she saw him a few years ago, just so I'd know. Uh, but <laughs> still mad. <laughs> just kind of wanted to know. But that was a turning point for me. Was I realized I had a, another boyfriend here who was a drug addict and stuff. And I just I told him that Gary was more important and I'd drop him in a minute. But uh-huh. I realized through the help of friends that I was broken. I was doing some really... Um, some hard drinking, and mm-hmm. it was time to grow up. And this is when you were still living with Vicky. Yeah, and that's when I started seeing all her friends and how they were acting. We'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying AA Recovery interviews, I invite you to check out my latest audiobook, Alcoholics Anonymous, the story of how more than 100 men have recovered from alcoholism. This is the word-for-word, cover-to-cover reading of the first edition of the Big Book, published in 1939. It's a relaxing yet meaningful and engaging way to listen to the Big Book anytime, anyplace. Have a free listen at Audible, iTunes, or Amazon. While you're there, search for my other audiobook, Lost Stories of the Big Book, 30 original stories missing from the third and fourth editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's also available from Amazon as a Kindle book or in paperback if you'd like to read along. You're going to love it. And we're back. This kind of takes us back to what we were talking about in the beginning where the people in the apartment building were members of this group that you became involved with. Yes. And and it was really good because I had a date one night and uh, with a Houston oiler that a friend got me. Right. And when we came home, he expected more, and they walked in on it and got him off of me. And oh my. those few incidents in such a short time made me realize it was just a matter of time before I was, you know, put myself, my life in danger. Uh-huh. So these people kind of reached into what was rapidly becoming a broken life to pull you out. That's what it sounds like. Yes. And they were they just always there when something bad was happening those last few months from January through June. Uh-huh. They were there just like, by example, just by listening and asking me. You know, I remember his name is Pat C. Asked yeah. me, are you happy? With the way things are going. And I said, well, if I knew where my contacts were and I could see, I don't know. I took them off when I was drunk last night and I can't see a thing. Yeah. And he yeah. said, do you think that's normal behavior? And, you know, mm-hmm. just was just kind of like, I, it was a wonder. He's still obviously a friend of mine yeah. today. But he was instrumental in just talking to me as, as a guy, just saying, you know, you deserve better. Yeah. Yeah. Pat's a, Pat's a beautiful, a beautiful man. He's uh, steeped in the program and in AA and in recovery. So this program that you were involved with, with these folks, 
It was based upon and working through the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. Yes, except they put the first two steps together and the second step was stick with winners in order to grow, which was a really good thing for a young adult to realize Mm -hmm. that peers were so important. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in my first few months of sobriety, I just went wherever everyone was going after coffee or ice cream or whatever, because mm-hmm. you could only talk to your sponsor at a meeting or on the phone. And, right. who, you know, we, there was no cell phones. So everything had to be planned. I see. And then at three months sobriety, this young man walked in that had an afro and was very attractive. And uh, <laughs> I said, I'm going to marry him. I don't know why he was opposite of surfers, but there was something about this guy. And my sponsor said, stay away. Oh, and he even told me at a party, stay away from me because I'm going to jail because uh-huh. I got, you know, this heroin case hanging <laughs> over me. But that just made him more attractive. Yeah. But he was such an, an attractive person and loved the program so much yeah. that they asked him to move to Austin to start a young people's program there. Sure. And so he did. And so we kind of started dating long distance and. I really liked him. I just, Mm -hmm. we Mm -hmm. really talked. We talked about everything. The Uh most important conversation we ever had was at Mount Bunnell when he asked me about, tell me about your God. Wow. And I said, I can't, you tell me first. And he did. And it was the beginning of of such a wonderful relationship with God because I had to throw mine away and start over. Yeah. And I've taken my kids there. And so John moved to... Austin. And uh-huh. eventually I got a job offer using my degree, sociology, uh, uh-huh. to work at the hospital and do biofeedback and neurotone on uh-huh. the on the alcohol floor. I see. It was unbelievable to be paid for doing something that you love, working with others, uh-huh. listening, helping with psychological testing, sitting mm-hmm. in group. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It enhanced my uh, sobriety I'm sure. as, with helping others, as we all know. Yeah. Yeah. And that's in Austin that you were doing that? Mm-hmm. So you and John were both in Austin by that point. Uh, this was how long after you met him or was this point that you're talking about? I think he had like six months of sobriety when he went. Right. But I got sick. They didn't know wh- what was wrong at first. And it was a female thing. And right. Anyway, uh, I had a pat smear. They said it was precancer. So oh I had to have back a surgery in uh-huh. uh uh, the, the doctor said, if it's cancer, we have to do a hysterectomy. Oh, no. And I was only 23, and John by, was with me and uh-huh. supported me through the surgery, and it went. It was endometriosis. It, it was oh, not that, cancer. It did not become cancer. Right. But I was so afraid of that surgery, I asked my sponsor if I should do the surgery without any drugs because I didn't want to affect my sobriety. Right. Uh-huh. And she said, no, you have to go <laughs> Yeah, they cannot cut you yeah, from yeah. hip bone to hip bone, and right. you not have. It's okay, right. and we'll just work. With, I'll talk you. I'll talk uh-huh. with you through it. Sure. Uh huh. And my grandmother at that time, that was the first time she met John, and she told me to marry him because he was, took good, such good care of me when uh-huh. I was sick. So yeah. I couldn't move right away because uh, I couldn't. Um, I had to be bed bound for a while. Uh huh. And but then when I got there, it was just such a wonderful gift. Uh, working there. Yeah. And then Panapt asked us to move back to Houston and work in Houston. Uh-huh. And uh, we got married in 78, January 78. So you guys were sober for about uh, a year and a half 
or mm-hmm. so when you got married. Okay. Mm-hmm. Both of you were engaged with PDAP to some degree. Yes. Were you also going to a lot of outside AA meetings as well? We went, started in Austin. That's when we went to our first AA meetings mm-hmm. when we were both in Austin because there was no other place for us. We were leading, so we couldn't get our needs met. So we started going, met some wonderful people, just loved it. How did it compare with the PDAP program, though, uh, from your experience with PDAP versus going to AA for the first time? Did you know, were, were there big differences that you noticed? The main difference were, there seemed like there were a lot more men yes. than women. Uh-huh. That was the main difference. And they seemed a lot more uh, hardcore drinkers. Mm-hmm. They had drank a lot longer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but they were totally accepting. Uh, at least the one we went to, there would be some meetings we went to where they they didn't like if you talked about drugs at the right. same time you're talking about alcohol. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. my experience was mainly with alcohol. Only one time did I ever do any drugs. Okay. But it was very welcoming, and uh, we liked this one group. And then John and I had moved in together before we got married. And uh, You were back in Houston after that point. You came back to Houston. after Yeah, after we got married, we came back. We got married at U of H. John was working uh, at that time. They asked him to work for PDAP, and he had cool. started working. And then they asked me to. Uh-huh. It was probably... The best service work I ever did was in the PNAP days yeah. because I had, I had some different experience. I worked with uh, juvenile probation yeah, and uh, got uh, children, young people who might not have otherwise gotten saved. I got to see who was being arrested at juvenile probation, mm-hmm. even if they were pyromaniacs. Yeah, that I think, well, maybe he's doing drugs. And then I said, can I talk to him? And then... yeah. I talked to him and get him uh, go before a judge with a social worker and get uh-huh. him probated to the program and try wow. to turn their lives around. So you guys are newly married and you became more and more involved in AA as time went on yes. in the in the city. In what ways did you and he support each other's program during the first number of years that you were married? Were there times at which he kind of held you up and vice versa? He probably held me up more than I held him up. He uh-huh. loved meetings. You know, obviously, I finally got over the fair and got learned how to drive when I was 21. Right. So we didn't have a lot of money, so we only had one car. So we would go to meetings a lot together. Hmm, mm-hmm. We go to uh, at first when we first got married to uh, PDAP meetings and mm-hmm. things, sure. and then we'd go to AA meetings. Uh-huh. But then um, when our first daughter was born, they asked us to move. She was a few months old to move to Waco and start uh-huh. a program there. Right, and uh, the AA there was not welcoming to me. They mm. the men basically told me that Al Anon was in the next room. Really, and I had never wow. experienced that before. Just because you were a woman, because I was a woman and a young a young woman, they just didn't get it. But John just said she's coming in here with me. <laughs> oh, good, good, good <laughs> you know, for him. Good, good, yeah. So they learned. They learned. They yeah. learned to accept me. Yeah. But at the same time, I learned to enjoy Al Anon and gain from Al-Anon learning about a relationship with a man who, even though he's sober, he's an alcoholic. I learned a lot from those women in in Waco. I'll bet you did. So you were involved in Al-Anon early on in your sobriety. Mm -hmm. Now, we're we're talking about PDAP, and when I've had other guests on the show who are in the recovery field, 
because of the anonymity and because of the sixth tradition and the fourth tradition, trying to keep a separation between AA and anything else, to what degree can one talk about, in your mind, about PADAP and AA in the same breath? Is that problematic at all? I personally don't think it is, but I understand where some people do because my understanding is when PADAP was started, they got permission from AA to use the steps. They did, okay. And and make adjustments for it. That's Mm -hmm. my understanding that Mm -hmm. that was always done. Mm -hmm. But I think for myself, the growing up came when John and I both ended up in AA on a regular basis. Uh, We kind of outgrew it for more than one reason. Well, it's meant for younger people anyway. So after you got married and you had your first daughter. Yes, it was just not was not a healthy environment anymore. And we didn't want people staying with us. We didn't want, you know, constantly having the door of of working the 12 step by having people live with us anymore when a baby came in. Yeah, I And I I pretty much so said, we're moving back to Houston. No, I don't want to work for PADAP anymore. I want us to be grown up and um, life events happened and John's father got very sick. So we Mm -hmm. had to move back Mm -hmm. and take over the family business. Right. I was grateful to be back in Houston and have a good support system in AA here. Yeah. And his whole family was here too, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. At the time, yeah. His sister was still here. Yeah. And so uh, he really, his mom needed him and he started enjoying being a real grown-up and have a real job, yeah, but committed to still going to meetings on a regular basis. And he was a lot of help to a lot of guys in those early years. I've, I've run into men over the years who talk about John in the early years that they knew him and uh, how he was so consistent throughout the years with regard to his involvement in the program and his willingness to work with other men and do what was ever necessary to make a man feel welcome being in AA. That was a real gift he had. Yes. And he, you know, obviously to the last meeting he had at our house before he died, he just was committed to the program and loved going to meetings. Yeah. If I can remember him, three things that John would say about a meeting is, uh, at birthday meetings, change, change will always happen. You got to be okay with it. And uh, love is the most powerful thing in the world. And uh, the third is, there's no place I'd rather be than right here, right now. Yeah. And that's how yeah. he felt at every meeting. And uh-huh. I, I was there with him uh, most of the time. But it got very hairy for me when I had two kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second one was born with a broken hip. And mm. she had a harness on it was very hard to manipulate a diaper and yeah. john's big hands couldn't do it just couldn't do it huh? so it was very overwhelming and, and there was a lot of fear mm-hmm. uh sure. i mean i trusted god that she would be able to walk someday that it would be okay because the doctors were like this is good we discovered it when she's an infant this will be mm-hmm. fine sure but it was a little bit scary and mm. so i found myself because we only had one car isolated in the suburbs while John worked and went to meetings. Hmm. And mm-hmm. I kept my program going with a sponsor and with friendships on the phone. Right. And right. reading my daily. And John and I would pray on our knees on a regular basis. Yeah, yeah. And we really did. We, we had a really supportive relationship. Mm-hmm. But then we did face 
a lot of adversities that... Yeah, I was going to ask a little bit more about that, because I know over the years John related some of them to me. I've, I've never heard about the thin ice periods uh, for you, though, during the the many, many years that you were sober. Can you can you think of a, a, some of the major events that happened within your decades of sobriety that may have tried your sobriety or made you question your spirituality? Well, I think the one of the main ones was with David. When my son was born, everything seemed okay. Uh, yes. He had some kind of virus or something at the hospital. And then uh, when he was growing the first few years, he just seemed weird. He was very quiet. His sisters would talk for him, but we just kept saying, when well, sisters talk for him and he seemed off, but our, our pediatrician kept saying, he's fine. He's mm-hmm. fine. Mm-hmm. When he was five years old, John and I started going to meetings on a regular basis and date nights every week. Right. Uh, uh-huh. we, th- by then the success was a little better. We had two uh-huh. cars and we, um, found out that the babysitter, who was a male, had molested our son. Oh, no. And the way we found out is my he was somebody that my sister had worked with, and mm-hmm. another child had told their parents, who was nine. Oh. So when me and John talked to David about it, he said, you know, he said he touched his privates. Uh-huh. And, but... Then we couldn't get him to open up to anybody, any doctor or anybody else ever again about it. Hmm. And so he couldn't testify, uh, which was good in some ways. Yeah. I felt super guilty. Like I, you know, I should have known. I should have, I should have seen the signs. Yeah. I should have whatever. Mm-hmm. And as far as how it affected him, he's only mentioned it, I think, once in his adulthood. Hmm. I chose not to talk to him about it because mm-hmm. he's. Uh, there, there's so many other issues with David. But the the main challenge was when he turned 13 and we and he said he wanted to go away, and we started realizing he was not like other kids, and uh-huh. so we put him in a hospital, and they diagnosed him with Asperger's form of autism and mm-hmm. uh, depression and anxiety. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, we had to start putting him on medications uh, yeah. because he started getting violent with me and yes. beating me up, dislocated oh my, my shoulder. And this became a wall or a wedge between me and John on how to handle this. Yeah. John wanted consequences. I wanted to protect my baby. I didn't want him in jail. I didn't think that would be the right route to call the police every time he beat me up. We could not find a common... And so we separated hmm. physically. Right. Both got apartments. We uh, sold our house at that time. Business was tough. Things were happening. John had hepatitis. Right. Um, he bit on interferon. So everyone was depressed. Everyone was scared. Mm. And so no one wanted to live with David. So we decided the safest thing was for us to live separate. And John was still kind of mad at me about the kids thinking somehow it was my fault that they weren't as good as they should be. They were kind of selfish and bratty or whatever. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We didn't. And anyway, so this, it drove, it drove a wedge, hmm. but it took John and I maybe six weeks to figure out it had nothing to do with our love for each other. Sure. But situations and we needed some professional help to get us through it. So we were seeing each other, but 
we were trying to keep David from hurting me. And so we explained to David that he needed to work harder on things. And Mm -hmm. um, I started going to different meetings than John, not always the same meetings. And Mm -hmm. it was very difficult. It was difficult for Jennifer, who was the middle child. And Jessica was, I think, a senior. And she she was ready to go to college. It wasn't really seeing him be hurting me. Right, right. Did you have any, at that point, did you have any support, like a support group or other women who had children with autism or Asperger's that you could relate to much like you would with somebody in AA or, or were you kind of isolated? I was kind of isolated. Uh, mm. But what it ended up being, unfortunately for me, was after I went through it, then I've sponsored people who have, who have had the kids with yeah, Asperger's. Sure. But it seemed like I was one of the first that was going through it. But John and I saw different therapists that helped us with who, who had strength here and needed to work on this and who needed to work on that, uh, to help David get through it. Uh-huh. Uh, and unfortunately, it, it seemed like, the worst came when John had the cancer. Yeah. Because the day we found out, John, it was for sure cancer. Jessica calls me at the same time saying she has a miscarriage. Yeah. I'm like crying because of what John's, the news from John's doctor at the same time my daughter lost her second child. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just didn't know if I could get through it. And then David, uh, who has been working with me, started hearing and feeling somebody beating him up. So uh, we had to put him in a psych hospital again. And when John came home one time after the surgery with all the incision, David started to punch him and I blocked the punch and got hit. And he got diagnosed with schizoid effect disorder. Very similar to schizophrenia. And so now he's on a lot of meds and, you know, it, it, it's probably been the, the, the biggest, uh, difficulty was working with David and getting on the same page and, uh, recommitting to our love for each other and making meetings a priority and working with others is just always, you know, being maximum service to God by working with others always seems to jumpstart us and get us out of worrying about him and learning how to have fun. Yeah. John and I dated. We always took time to go out together yeah. and be together. I remember John talking about your date nights, and I remember a number of the things you're talking about. I remember hearing about them whenever I would talk to John and we would talk on the phone or after a meeting or something. And uh, I remember thinking how difficult that must be. I'm curious, what was your spiritual feeling like at this time that you were going through all these difficulties with, with David and and with the marriage? How, how did you feel spiritually and how did you feel about God at that time? The way I have often dealt with my relationship with God is journaling. Mm-hmm. I, I write a lot uh, because sometimes I don't know where I'm at with God and in order to get through a comfortable place, a loving place, and a loving God is I have to go through writing about my anger and hurt and confusion. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I have to accept the fact that 
every now and then I have to throw away who this God I had going for me for a couple of weeks is not my God. That mm-hmm. is, is just a distorted version yeah. and uh, that he's not punishing me yeah. and he's not punishing David. He's not punishing John. And that most of the time, as we know, after we get to the other side and things get better, realize I, my family grew from all the adversity. My girls are better adults because they weren't spoiled with maids picking up after them and that they learned that we didn't have any money and they had to learn how to do things that Mm -hmm. they became better people and my oldest sometimes would be a little upset yeah uh that she had to pay for college and pay for her car Mm -hmm. you know if it wasn't for the program and our connection Mm -hmm. our daughter jessica would not would have gotten lost and yeah. not found the path to sobriety through the mm-hmm. help of, of young people and AA mm-hmm. and so forth that we're grateful for the support that they've given her. But my relationship with God uh, got very damaged when John died because yeah. I would think, why is my brother still alive and John's not here to save lives? Yeah. You know, and why would the doctor say that he couldn't give John a liver, a good liver, you know, and he should give it to somebody else. And I told the doctor, John saved more lives than you have. And yeah. I just was so angry. And huh. um, I realized that a lot of times when I get angry at God today and feel mm-hmm. sad about John not being there, I, I, John's on my shoulder saying, you're blessed every day. Mm-hmm. You know, we had a wonderful life. We had so many gifts. And we have so many friends today that I didn't have and do have and have continued to have that, you know, despite uh, losing the love of your life, God has, I'm, I'm much stronger than I thought I could be. I enjoy this program and mm-hmm. I enjoy going to meetings. I enjoy listening to people. I enjoy the phone calls and I enjoy making the phone calls. Mm-hmm. And I, I can't imagine what my life would be like if I didn't write and mm-hmm. get get this the, whatever feeling out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I I'm a lot more forgiving of people who make mistakes yeah. uh, than I used to be. I'm mm-hmm. not as black and white. I realize mm-hmm. everybody has so much behind them that. I don't judge people. They don't have to work the steps exactly the same way I do Mm -hmm. or follow the rules the same way I do to be working a good program. Yeah. How extraordinary it is that you were able to share not only a marriage and the love and the the children and all the other great things with another person of of John's uh, character, but to be able to do it within the framework of being involved in AA, with both of you being very involved in AA. I mean, John was amazing. Uh, He was one of the few people I've ever known who would always give his first name and last name. And whenever anybody would ask him about that, I'm not going to use his last name here because I'm I'm trying to maintain the uh, the strictest anonymity. But whenever he would say his last name, and, and I remember asking him about it early on, why do you say your last name? He said, because people need to know who I am. And this is who I am. And it was just, it was a beautiful, it was just, yeah. he said, he said, I'm, I'm more than just another John in the program and people need to know that. And, That's and sweet. Yeah. that opened up so many doors for people to approach John because he was so approachable. The love that still felt for this man 
uh, all these years later. How many years has he been gone now, Tom? It's almost seven years. Seven years. God, it seems like just yesterday. Yeah, and I I think because of accepting and and having him in the back of my mind uh, of of relying on the program and uh, think about the blessings and gratitude that I can't imagine what my life would be like if I didn't go to meetings that I think, mm. I, I, well, I know what it'd be like. I'd be an angry person. Yeah. I would be, uh, and I'm no longer a victim. Mm-hmm. I understand that bad things happen to good people True. and yeah. that working the steps that I can get through anything and yeah. I don't have to go through it alone, that I have a great sponsor and I can always be honest with her about anything. Even when I'm mad at God, why is he doing this? And she'll say, Oh my God, I am so sorry to hear that. It's like blah, 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 <laughs> you know. But sometimes that's embarrassing. I'm like, yeah. at this amount of sobriety, shouldn't it all be uphill? But, yeah. yeah. You know, I, I've dealt with the same year. I don't know if you know the story, but one of the things that I, that will describe my sister and I's relationship, uh-huh. and John, I think it was the same year John died. Yeah. I was visiting my sister and she lives by the zoo in uh, a townhome. Uh-huh. And we're standing there in these, we see, I put my surfboard that I had at her house in my car and we were talking and we see these three boys walk up and we both look at each other and I thought, I'm not going to judge them. I'm not going to be afraid. And sure enough, one of them puts a gun in my side and my sister stands back and says, get that gun away from her. Your mothers would be ashamed of you. Keep walking, get away from. And I'm like frozen. And the only thing I know is I'm sitting there with my phone and all I can think of is all the pictures of me and John in there. Mm-hmm. And I don't want them to have my phone. So I throw the phone on the floor. So the guy kind of goes across my lap with the gun still in my waist, try to grab the phone, and I just start hitting him. I don't know what we're doing. We're doing all the things that you might not have done. Yeah. But she's still yelling at him. So she doesn't grab him, but somehow I have. he's trying to grab my keys now. And somehow I just like... They break apart, go flying everywhere. So he starts running. They all start running. Oh, my goodness. And uh, we both look at each other. And for some reason, I decide I'm going to go get him. So I tear <laughs> off and leave my sister there. And oh, then no. I'm going, what the hell am I thinking? So I went around the block, came back. And, you know, by then she had already called the police. Oh, my. But the thing that's, that is so funny is that my phone was so precious to me, yeah. which I've saved all those pictures because mm-hmm. I didn't want to lose yeah. These pictures, these memories, mm-hmm. and especially his voice. Oh, yeah. He, the one thing that I had on it was this song that he had sang to Jacqueline, uh, I love you this much. Uh, oh, and he, yeah. I love you this. Yeah. So anyway. That's beautiful. Yeah. And I wasn't afraid. I was I was like, God's going to get us through this. I mean, both of us, I never, I didn't cry about it. I just went. I, I just, if, you know, if he shot me, he shot me, but it was like, I'm going to try to defend myself. And the policeman said, you know, I wouldn't advise that, but, you know, you did what you did and you survived. So that's, it's a good day. What an extraordinary realization, too. And the fact that you, you just mentioned about the pictures and, and, the, and the voice, every message that John ever left for me, I still have in my phone. <sighs> And from time to time, I'll go back and listen to them. And one of the things he always used to say when he left a message was, uh, he used to say, I just wanted to call and tell you a day without Howard is like a day without sunshine. And I thought, God, what a beautiful 
beautiful sentiment. Yeah, and he was just yeah. that kind of man. And I, I, I miss him greatly, as I know a lot of people do. But your willingness to share some of the intimate details of your relationship with him and with AA and the two of you being such strong influencers on other people's lives. I mean, John sure as heck was. I know you are too. The women who you sponsor and the the work that you've done in the program over the years, it shows. It shows. The fact that you're, you've are you been willing to do this. I don't know who's going to hear this, except that I've done this now. I've done, your, I think, the 14th interview I've done. And a lot of these interviews have been done with people with many, many years. You're coming up on 45. I've had some others who've had over 40. But what's really interesting about it is that even with all those years, you still sound as vibrant and enthusiastic about AA as ever. And I wondered, for people who can't imagine why that is, that somebody going on 45 years would still feel like really enthusiastic and, and real jazz about AA, what would you say to them? I guess for me, the main reason is because I just think of AA as a gift every day because there's nothing that I haven't been through that's made me want to drink. Mm -hmm. And that has to do with the grace of God and this program, because how else could a person survive some of the things that have happened? And why wouldn't you drink if this, that, and the other happened? Right. It's this program has given me my life and continues to give me my life. So I can't imagine living. If they told me tomorrow that, here, take this one pill, this vaccination, and you'll uh -huh. never have the desire, I wouldn't take it. I want the meetings. I, I need the human connection. I learn something every meeting. That's why mm. I have to keep going because I forget it. Yeah. These little things until people share their stories with me, their details that I understand what I have to keep doing. And I love it. Yeah, yeah, I get that. And it shows, Diane. And, and you're such a, a great embodiment of, of the gifts of the program. And being able to know you and John for as many years as I have and getting a chance to reconnect with you now after having not seen you has just been absolutely, absolutely marvelous. And oh, it's, it's been wonderful. I, I really appreciate you doing this. What um, is there anything else that you'd like to, to add before we wrap up uh, with just regard to uh, AA and your life and anything else? Well, I still believe that it's important for a person, no matter how many how much sobriety they have, that they continue to go to meetings, yeah. read the big book, mm -hmm. talk to their sponsor, mm -hmm. and reach out to others and work with others. If any of those elements are gone, you're depriving yourself of the gifts of sobriety. Yeah. And I still enjoy the travels uh -huh. and to go to meetings in other places. Yeah. I'm not as good as I was because it was a lot more fun when John was with me and I had yeah. a lot more courage to walk into that room. But one of the gifts was when uh, one year we went with uh, me and John and Jessica and Ryan and we all were out of town and went to a meeting together as a family. Oh, it was pretty cool. It was yeah. very much so a gift. And so I'm really grateful that uh, I live in a house of uh, with now with Jessica and Ryan and my granddaughters because I like being with people. Yeah, and sober people. Isn't it wonderful? Sober people. And so that I can al they can always say, Mom, maybe you need a meeting. <laughs> <laughs> That's when you know that your sobriety and the gifts of that sobriety have infiltrated your family psyche, <laughs> is when, when people know that you need a meeting and they suggest it to you. Uh -huh. Well, Diane, this has really been terrific, and I want to thank you so much for doing this. I love you, and you're a beautiful person, and I'm just 
grateful that you and I have had the chance to connect like this. Oh, I'm grateful to be here. And uh, I, I wish you and your family the best. Well, thank you. Thank you. Well, my friends, that's a wrap for today's episode of AA Recovery Interviews. Thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, will you please tell others how to listen to it? Think of it as a little AA service that spreads the word about this rich and meaningful listening experience. It's yet another helping hand we can all extend to alcoholics everywhere. Of course, you can listen to my entire catalog of interviews in this podcast series by following it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, Amazon, and other podcast providers. Or tell your smart speaker, play AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, where you can listen to every episode of the podcast series. And if you want to contact me directly with any comments or suggestions, simply email me at howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA, that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.